Welcome to the Secret to My Success Show. Our guests will inspire, educate, and motivate our listeners who own a business or dream about being a business owner. Today's guests will share their stories and the secrets to their success. They have valuable insight with what they went through to start and grow their business. They will share the good, the bad, and the ugly. I promise it will be fun and valuable. Later in the show, former Major League Baseball player Luis Alaseo will be here talking to former celebrities and athletes about their transition from fame to being hands-on business owners. Good day. This is Alan, Secret to My Success, with my buddy, Mr. Luis Alaseo. Luis, how are you? Good, man. How are you, bro? I'm good. How are you feeling? I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling good. Knowing that I don't have COVID, I'm good now. So just a little bit of bronchitis, but... That's good. We got the match, and we're going to be, be all right. It seems like everybody I know is telling me they have it or they know somebody that has it. Yeah, well, it started out with the kids, and, um, you know, after the break, they came back from school with some issues, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, I felt coughing and a little chest pressure last night, and got myself checked uh, this morning, and uh, sure enough, it's a little bronchitis, so. Well, we well, took it up. We got it on time, so should be should be fine in the next few days. Maybe a few shots of Fireball alcohol will help. What do you think, Louie? I'll meet up with you and we'll do a couple shots. Well, I'll tell you what. I've been gargling salt, water, uh, baking soda, lemon, uh, warm water for the last few days, and it kind of helps you, kind of clears you up a little bit, but i taking care of it. Louie, I'm not sure how that competes with Fireball or any other kind of alcohol, and that's the way you're going? I do not want to do the alcohol <laughs> Fireball. How about that? Okay. Louie, we have a special guest today. We have Seth Bornstein, and of course, he's related to me being another Bornstein, and he happens to be Uncle Jack Bornstein. We had him on as a guest eh, oh a couple months God, ago. Oh, my God, another Bornstein? Another I, one, yes. Another Bornstein. So Seth is the son of my 101-year-old uncle. And I've got to tell you, a lot of people think that I'm the king of networking. I've been called the guy who knows everybody. And compared to my cousin Seth here, I'm an amateur. I know nobody. And it's a funny story. I'm in a networking group down in Miami, and there's this woman who's telling me she's trying to do some stuff in New York. I said, that's awesome. I've got a cousin. You should talk to him because he's the economic development director for Queens. And she says, is that Seth Bornstein? I'm like, yes. She's like, oh, my God, I know your cousin. Down in Miami at a meeting. So, yes. Everywhere I go. In fact, we had another guest, Melanie Lenz, that was on, who I got to meet through Seth because you worked with her in New York. Right. So, Seth, let's. Is it fair to say that a lot of uh, what you, the way you do things, the way you learn about networking, it came from Seth? Or from Uncle Jack. I, I think it's a Bornstein thing. I think it's it's instilled in us having the Bornstein name. Right. We're a very gregarious family and outgoing, so it's no surprise. Not all of us. Not all of us. Most of us. Not all of us Bornsteins are created <laughs> equal. <laughs> so, Seth, you're born and raised in New York. New York, born in Brooklyn, uh, lived in New York with the exception of six years in Omaha, Nebraska. I've never lived more than about... 15 miles from Times Square, so I'm a real New Yorker, and uh, now 65 years old, so I I am a native of the city and uh, love living there. It's good to visit Florida, see my dad, see my cousins, um, but I am a New Yorker at heart and soul. 
but you're a student in New York. I'll never forget when I was a kid going into New York and you took me around and you know everything about yeah. everything. You know? Yeah, I, I'm a New York City geek, history geek. So I love showing people New York City, uh, the, uh, the oddball parts about it, the established parts about it. And it, it's always fun. I have a ton of books about New York history. And it's a great place to live, I think. You know, it's got some issues like everywhere else. Um, and uh, my work has taken me around the city quite a bit. I've been involved in this field for about 45 years or so in economic development, mostly in Queens County, but I'm familiar with all New York City and you know what makes it tick. So we're not going to go there just yet, but I've got to ask the question. You're a New Yorker, but are you a Mets fan or a Yankees fan? I'm a Mets fan. Okay. You know, I, I work in Queens. I've got to be a Mets fan. And uh, I used to love to go out to the to Shea Stadium with my cousin Richie, our older cousin. He, I was seven. He was nine. So he was a lot more mature, taking me in the subway with the two of us. And uh, I used to love watching the Mets lose in those days. So, you know, Louie was the first base coach for the Mets. Wow. That's right, Louie? Yes, but it wasn't a good experience. <laughs> it it wasn't. No, it wasn't. You were the... was, uh, It was a tough, it was a tough year for the Mets. Uh, uh, managing office, it was uh, it was just it was no good. It was no good. Yeah. So uh, kind of kind of take the little sweeter, you know, sweet taste of baseball away from you, and you know, kind of got me say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. But. Uh, they're doing good right now. They are. It's a good year. Uh, my claim to fame is I was at the Tom Seaver one-hitter with Jerry Qualls, 1964, 65. I forget what year. But uh, I was at that game, which was exciting. Lou, you don't remember that only because I don't think you were born then, <laughs> do you? I don't think so. It was the one-hitter, Tom, Tom Seaver. Jerry Qualls hit the ball. It was great. So, Seth, let's talk about your progression. You went to school where? Uh, I have a degree in fine art from Parsons School of Design. Um, you know, I, I really, when I graduated high school, I really had no clue what to do. And art school seemed like a fun thing to do. I lived in Greenwich Village back in the early, mid-'70s and um, took a class, took a classes in what's called environmental design, which really meant a lot of different things to different people. But there was a small section of urban design, so I took a few classes in that. Uh, I really didn't think about career. I was not very mature in those days. Uh, left college, worked for a bit as a waiter for an architect, and I tra- left New York, traveled to Europe for about a year, backpacked. This is the late 70s. It was a great experience. But came back to New York in late 79, and I realized I've got to make some money to live here. And uh, I saw a position at what's the organization I'm with now, but it just started the Queens Economic Development Corporation. They advertised for a community site coordinator. I don't know what that meant. And I went to the interview, and the woman who interviewed me, she said, what do you know about Queens? And Queens County is one of the five boroughs in New York City, which I never lived in, but I knew of it a little bit. But I really didn't know a lot about it. But she said, Seth, what do you know about Queens? I said, there's a lot of really good Italian restaurants. So we had a great conversation, about 20 minutes, about which Italian restaurant is the best. And she looked at me and said, Seth, you don't know anything about Queens, but I like you. A high for six months. Salary's $10,000. I was excited because it was five-figure salary. I never received five figures before. And uh, I ended up being there the first round about 11 years. And when I left in 1990, I was a sort of de facto deputy director. Uh, I moved out west for about six years and uh, came back to New York in 1996. Hold on. Time out. Time out. So I used to get these letters from Seth, and they were called Letters from the Interior. 
when he was out in Nebraska. I used to send them to the family. Yeah, yeah I lived out in Nebraska for six years. We, my wife's from Omaha. When our daughters were born in 1990, we needed lots of help between girls. The main laws were, you know, come with with us. And we loved Nebraska, but career-wise, it wasn't the place for us. My wife's background is international affairs. The only thing international in Nebraska was the House of Pancakes. <laughs> so we uh, really had a limited, limited opportunity there. And also, urban affairs isn't going to happen much in my world, Norma. So I was offered a position back in New York with the Queensborough president, the local uh, elected official for the two main people. And I was her director of economic development for uh, ten ye- almost 10 years. I stayed with her and her successor in 2000. Seven, I left to work at a local college as a dean for economic development, and I, I learned. You know, in careers, you learn more by um, what you experience different things. And it wasn't what my field. I was didn't like a big organization. It was a big school, and it was I wasn't that good academic. So I was offered a position back where I started the Queens Economic Development Corporation as their executive director and. 2009. I've been there ever since, going on 13 years, and uh, it's been a really good run. I am very fortunate. I like what I do. I have a great staff, and we do a lot of things. Um, the role of a local economic development agency in a city of 2.2 million people is really a lot of different varied functions, but the main thing is helping people start and grow their small business. And, um, and that's what our whole show is about. Yeah. It, how we can help transition people from being employed to being self-employed. To be entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship is really so fast, so growing. It's a fast-growing operation. But one thing people need to know is do the research, do the homework, understand what they're going to do. So we have about 12, 15 programs helping people start and grow their small business. But the core of every program is individual counseling. I really believe... You need to have one-on-one counseling to get going. You can't learn it in the class or online. So I want to go back. I remember when you had told me about an incubator that you had started trying to help restaurants or people that wanted to sell food. Right. In 2009, I remember I started the position second round in December, and we had an opportunity to take over a commercial kitchen in Queens, a 5,000-square-foot kitchen, and transform it to a facility where people could start their food business. Uh, there are a lot of incubators for tech. You know, you plug in your computer, you have a business. But a kitchen, that's a whole other story because it's a big facility. Lots of things break, a lot of equipment. Uh, but it was a challenge. And there's a demand for people when they start a food business. You can't afford to rent a kitchen at all because you're just starting out. But our kitchen provides rental space by the shift business counseling, and technical assistance. So you know, we tell people every brownie should make a profit. And uh, we provide the counseling, the space, and the technical assistance to succeed. Uh, since 2009, we've had over 600 businesses come and go through our incubator. And like any small business, especially food, you know, many don't make it. It's an incubator. Some do not make it for many reasons. A lot of times people reali- don't realize how difficult it is to run a small business, especially a food business. So um, we've had a number of attrition happens, but we've had about 30 to 40% of our businesses go on to co-packers or they open their own space. And that's really exciting. But now, isn't it necessary that if you are going to make food commercially, that you need to be in a commercial kitchen? Absolutely. You can't can't do it at home. home, So it's it's physically impossible. It's illegal to produce food. You don't want to have food bought in a store that you've made. So you don't know the hygiene. Uh, It's not inspected. And you physically can't cook on a scale that you would in a commercial kitchen. So 
you know, people always start out at home, which is fine, but to really scale up and be a good business, you need the facilities. And uh, we got some great successes. One of our just the last six months, uh, Pizza Cupcake. They were on Shark Tank, and now they're selling all over at Whole Foods, doing great stuff. Uh, MJ Chocolatier, Melanie Chocolate, has been selling. She sold all, all over the country. She's selling in L.A. and New York, and it's great. You know, the thing about an incubator is businesses do well, and they leave the nest. And it breaks my heart because, you know, they're, they're no longer part of me. But um, that's the, what they should do. Uh, one thing about a small business consultancy like ours is I always tell people we're the midwife. You know, once a business takes off, nobody remembers the midwife. Once a baby's born, same thing small business constantly. So it's hard to track our successes. We're getting better at it. But we've had some great successes over the years, and uh, and it really you know, helping people. And Queens County is majority, minority immigrants, women, small business, low middle income, and that's our world. Nobody comes to me with a million dollars of venture capital for a high-tech company. It's I want to make cupcakes. I'm a soup maker. I want to clean houses commercially. Uh, I want to do garden landscaping. That's my world. It's a big world. And people like that have very few resources to go to get advice. Uh, we're not a funding agency, though we do provide once a year. We have a startup business competition and give four businesses $10,000 prizes after they go through a series of um, competition and they develop a business plan. And this year, we just announced the awards. Um, last month and you know a couple of great businesses uh Ticon barbecue which is a socially conscious barbecue company that gives back to the community um we have um uh, the other one is a park watch woman to develop a technology company which shows you where to park in new york city online which is you know great when you're driving around away there's a space mm-hmm. uh, and two others also so it's been every year there's exciting businesses three years ago four years ago we had uh, one of our clients, uh, he did, he sold, um, he helped contractors or building owners uh, source supplies. And up until then, it really wasn't done online. And recently, he sold his company out for a few million dollars. So nice. that's a success. Lou, you have any questions here? Because I know we kind No, of I'm actually pretty amazing what he's doing. I mean, listening to, you know, what he's done, what he started, how he, it's pretty amazing. But I guess you didn't get any on the restaurant. You, you being a Bornstein, Alan, you didn't get any of that, right? No, we don't do restaurants. That's, that's not a point. But we did have a cousin who opened up a Gloria Jean. She was, he was selling coffee. Right, coffee in a shopping mall instead right. of anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, yeah. Like to, we like to eat in restaurants, but no one has started. Though it's interesting. Years ago, my friend Cliff, who Alan knows, uh, a couple of years out of college, opened a the first San Francisco-style uh, burrito burrito business restaurant in New York City, Benny's Burritos. And I had invested with my friend Cliff in a number of businesses prior to that. None of them were food. And he said, if we're doing this restaurant, do you want to invest? And, you know, I know restaurants are so hard to make it. And I decided I'm not going to I'm not gonna touch that one. Big mistake. Benny's Burritos was a business. It just closed. He had sold it years ago, but he had four branches in New York City and did very well over the years. Um, so uh, sometimes so many- they take off. How many restaurants have you? How many restaurants have you started? Restaurants? No, that that was that was a friend's business. It wasn't no, no, no business. through the incubator. How many? The, how many? Rest, you know, we we've helped uh, probably we help about five hundred businesses a year, and it really varies in every sector from food, food manufacturing, small restaurants, service businesses, tech businesses. We help. We've about two thousand clients. 
clients come to programs, we have classes, and they've all been online the last two years. Counseling, all been online, or you know, Skype or Facebook, Zoom meetings. Um, so we work with about 2,000 uh, people a year, 450, 500 businesses a year. So you're kind of like the bar rescue guy that comes in and... Um, not a sort of a little bit. We, we you know, people come to us when they're starting their business, not when it's failing and need assistance like that. You know, it, it's it's sad when a business gets to that point where they need a rescue. It's pretty rough. You know, we want to get people to understand what they need to do before it gets to that point. So we do a class once a month. I, I I've been teaching it called Ready Set Go, and it's basically things to think about when starting a small business. And I always tell them I don't want you to spend a cent to understand what you're getting into. You know, do your homework, do your research. You know, one of the things people like, you know, I want to open a, uh, a coffee shop. All right, go to every coffee shop you can imagine, see what works, what doesn't. Understand it. If you're not passionate about what you want to do, um, it's not going to work. If you have a business idea that is kind of wacky, speak to people about it, get the reactions. You know, one of the funniest, it's kind of sick, but one of the funniest Years ago, someone had an idea for tattoos for children. You know, uh, and I said, I don't think it's a really good idea. You know, and they were convinced it was a good idea. I said, find me any of the business that does tattoos for kids and come back to me. He never came back to me. You know, some business ideas are not good. His name was cute, Tiny Tats. It was a cute name. But the reality of a business for tattoos for kids is a really bad idea. So we're going to talk about characteristics of successful businesses that you've re- touched and I'd like to talk for first about the characteristics of the businesses that have failed. And how long does it take you when you meet somebody who comes looking for help for you to figure out that they're going to fail? You know, people don't do the homework. They don't do the research. They're undercapitalized. And they think they can do it all themselves. You know, one thing about a small business is I always tell people, develop your kitchen cabinet. Get yourself a good lawyer. Get yourself an insurance person. If it's brick and mortar, real estate, technology, social media, get people who know this better than you. Um, you can't do it all in a small business. Using assistance and help, don't be ashamed to ask for help. Even, you know, Queen's Economic Development, we're a small business too. We're not a profit, but a small business. And as I was telling Alan earlier today, any business, and myself, I run this organization, I'm pretty good in some of the programs, not an expert. My staff, I have great people who really understand this specific program. My role is to be the conductor of the orchestra. I know the, I know the music fairly well, but they really know excellent. They are virtuosos. My role is to make it sound good together. Same with a small business. You can't expect to do it all yourself. If you do, you're doomed to failure. And you have to have a, make decisions fairly rapidly. If you deliberate for months and weeks over what to do, destined to fail. You will make mistakes. Indecision is not a decision. Indecision is not a decision. You will make mistakes, but the thing about making mistakes is try and learn from the mistake. And it's hard for some people who don't want to admit they've made a mistake. And they're the ones who I think will probably fail. How long does it take for you when you meet somebody and they're pitching their idea for you to figure out, I don't think it's happening? Yeah, it really varies. People need to be good listeners. If I, someone comes to me with an idea and you know, they explain it. I try to make suggestions. They don't listen to me. My sense is they're not going to make it. You know, I'm not an expert in everything, but if it sounds off and I tell them I'm honest, you know, they need to really study that aspect a bit more, then my sense is they, not, they may not make it. 
I learned my lesson years ago. I'm over in China. It's 1993, and friend walks in and grabs a card. I said, "What's that?" They said, oh, "It's a prepaid calling card." I'm like, "I don't understand." They said, "Well, use this prepaid calling card, and you make phone calls." I'm like, "Why would anybody do that?" At the time, AT and T would give you a card, and you'd make a phone call, and they'd send you a bill. I'm like, "That would never work in this country." Okay, and then what? Six months later, prepaid prepaid calling cards are all over the United States, right. and it turned out to be a big scam. It was funny that the mob was involved in it. There was all kinds of. It was actually they they had it on the Sopranos, so it kind of made me adjust my thinking personally mm -hmm. when I hear about an idea. Like we had uh, Henry on from Weedsies. Weedsies is selling weed all over the place. The average person would say that's never going to work, and this guy's successful. He's doing really great. Mm -hmm. So. At some point, you have to stand back when you're talking to somebody, whether you like that idea or not, to understand, are they the right person to move the bar? Yeah. And, like If you watched Moneyball at the end, the guy came out and said, the first guy who goes through the brick wall gets bloody. It's expected. So if somebody's trying to do something like you were just talking about the tattoo guy, but that idea just seems stupid, that you're going to do tattoos for kids, that guy gets bloody. So it's not always the first guy who makes it, but it's the second or third guy. That's that, that's true. That definitely could happen, you know. But you have to really to start a business. You really have to give it your all. You have to also think: Is this the right time in your life? When we did our classes uh, before the COVID, we had uh, once a month the Ready Set Go class, and we get ten to twenty people show up. It's a free hour and a half class, PowerPoint, going over all the issues. And sometimes people come in there. It's after work, so the class is seven o'clock. People come in with three or four kids in tow, doing the homework. And you can tell, I'd always say, you know, if you've got small kids or aging parents, if your life is busy, this may not be the time to do this because you want to be successful. And what I do say is start doing research now for when the time is ready, but don't try to do it all at the same time. Uh, it's, it's doomed for failure. And also, you know, if it doesn't make you entirely happy, if you don't want to get up and go every morning to do it, it's not for you. Because you're the boss of yourself. Right. Nobody's telling you to get up in the morning. If you can't do that, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. But don't waste any money. I just don't want people to spend money. It upsets me when people say, I got a guy who can do a business plan for me. I go, no, no. You need to do the business plan. You need to understand your business, not someone else. If you can't explain your business, you got to change the format. Right. I have uh, a friend of mine came to me. He was actually one of my bosses, and I had gone on my own. And he's come to me, and he tells me he's thinking about going on his own. I said, so, so what's the problem? He says, Alan, I'm scared. I said, I'm going to tell you what. If you're not scared, you're an idiot. That's true. It's true. I mean, everybody should be a little nervous. You have to be. You have to be. And confidence is important, but be aware of your strengths and weaknesses. And you know, accentuate those strengths and work on the weaknesses. But fear is a motivational factor that gets yeah. you up every morning to say, yeah. where's my next meal coming from? Right. How am I going to make this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other it thing happens it, the same way in sports. Yeah. Fears will make you run faster, throw harder, same track, quicker. Right. Same thing. In yeah. And the other thing I always tell people about when they start a business is, you know, be transparent, be honest. I mean, Mark Twain's great line, if I lie, I have to remember things, you know, and that's really true in small business. Don't overpromise, underdeliver, because bad rep gets around much faster than good rep. We've all been to restaurants, we have a great meal. You know, we may say, oh, I had a great meal at Giuseppe's last week. If you had a crappy meal at Giuseppe's, you'll put it on Facebook and Yelp and everything else. Bad news makes it around, especially today with social media. Everything gets around so fast. So, you know, err on the side of caution. Always 
under-promise and over-deliver, they'll remember that. When I started my first business, I was 19, 18, and what I did was, just like you said, learn. And it's funny, you hadn't told me this, but maybe it's just the Bornstein trade. I took a tape recorder, and I went into five different staffing firms. I told them that I was doing a report for school, and I wanted to learn everything about their business. Can I see your forms? Can I see the paperwork they're using? They gave me everything, everything I needed to know, and I understood what they did. And then two weeks later, I took what I had and created my own. And that's exactly what we tell businesses to do. You're thinking of a coffee shop, go to 20 coffee shops. You're thinking of a daycare company, call every daycare service, see what they charge, what the hours are. See what, also, when you develop your marketing plan, you know, what is your niche? Why, is you, why would we use your product or service? I don't know the answer. You have to figure that out. Because there, there are many payroll companies in Florida, right, right. Alan? And yours is one of them. Why would we want to use your payroll company? One thing I suspect is personal service. Every person who uses your company has a problem. They call you directly, and you could refer them out to your staff. But that's really important. The personal touch is, you know, in this day and age of data and, you know, customer service, you know, the idea of getting to a person right away to get assistance makes a big difference. I'm, I'm recently, I'm looking for um, a new health insurance provider for my company. And the one reason I use the one I have now, which is high, is when I've got a problem, I call Sarah up and said, my staff person couldn't get the insurance, and she runs interference. And I, I will pay more for that than a lesser, uh, cheaper policy where I can't get through to someone on the phone. And that's really important to me, and I think most people would agree with me on that. So characteristics of the successful people that you've seen, what is the common trait that you see in the people that come in and they make it? You know, they're good listeners, uh, better listeners than talkers. I mean, that's one thing. They've done their research, and they treat their employees when they start having with respect. Uh, and they don't do, they, they do anything in the office that needs to be done. When I hire some people in my office, when I hire anybody, I let them, I'm the director, but I take the garbage out to on occasion if I need to. Right. It's not beneath me. And another thing I've done, not all the time, but I, I want to see on my staff people who work for me treat other people. So the one thing I've done a few times is go for lunch with them. And if they treat the server disrespectfully, they're not hired. You know? And that means you know, not being brusque, you know, eye contact if appropriate. I guess saying please and thank you. Really simple things. Someone can be a brilliant MBA from Harvard or Yale, but if they treat people, uh, talk down to people, I don't want to work with them. You know, it goes, it, once again, uh, the things you just mentioned, it, I can definitely relate in sports. Uh, it's the same thing in business. Um, an athlete that don't listen is an uncoachable player. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah. it's the same thing. you got to be coachable. you got to be able to make adjustments, listen, and, and really move forward. I think that's one of the main ingredients. And, uh, you, you know, I, I keep keep preaching that to the kids. They've got to learn to listen. And, and, uh, and they're a team. So yeah, They're a team, and that's really important. A business is like a sports team. You all work together. If you don't, it doesn't work at all. Yep. So somebody you, somebody explained to me, Louie, and I think we've talked about this, that if you were trying to put together a baseball team and everybody was Mark McGuire, your team would fail. Because <laughs> you can't have everybody swinging for the fence. You need a no, lead-off hitter, a second, a third. You you need a number nine hitter. That no, if, most important, Alan, you know, you got to learn to delegate 
people that are responsible in different areas. They're experts. Like you mentioned, you got to have a great team. You got to bring the people that are good accountants. You got to bring the good lawyer, the good insurance person. So it becomes a team. That way you're protected all around. So when something fails, you have that person that you can say, hey, what happened here? How can we fix this? He's an expert on that on that subject. So it's all written right out there, man. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's true. It really is important to have a team and transparency. I have, my office is open floor plan, but I always joke if I had a door, it would never be closed. I mean, right now, there's no doors in my office, so we're all there. And we all share. And we also, I'm fortunate. I've had people with me for 10, 12 years. Uh, and it's nonprofit. We don't pay top dollar, but we make it a pleasant place to work, and we reward people, and we celebrate our achievements. That's really important. It's not phony. I mean, we do it because we like each other. And that's really important. I, I've been, I've learned a lot about management. It's funny, you learn about management from bad managers. I once had a very bad manager. I remember thinking, if I ever get to manage, I will do everything the opposite of what's been done to me. And it really has helped me over the years. You know, if uh, some, and I, we have issues. It's not every office have issues. People come to me with problems. And, you know, also, we were in a different era than we were 30 years ago. Um, Everybody is a lot more sensitivity. And one thing we've had to adjust to is it's not the old boys' school anymore in any small office or the old girls' school. We have to be aware of other people's feelings and issues. And I've had the conversation with staff. What you may think is really funny is very insensitive to someone else. So we have to err on the side of conservatives. I'm not conservative in any way, but in that respect, I am. You know, if you think it's hysterical and funny, but someone else doesn't, don't say it. You know, I had to go through a management uh, leadership training course, and it was re- it was uh, led by lawyers. And they said, when you're about to say what you're about to say, pretend there's a judge, you're in the jury box, or rather in the witness box, and there's a jury listening to what you're saying. Is it as funny as you think it is? Yeah, no, that's excellent advice, because I, I, I think I, I could have an off sense of humor sometimes, as uh, you know, my daughters and family would sometimes say. But when I'm in the office, I never ever, and this is going on, even before we became a little more PC than we are now, I just realized, you know, I think it's funny, may not be funny to someone else, and we never want to be in a situation to make people uncomfortable, uh, because you want to be a team, and once you make people uncomfortable, the trust falls apart. So we're going to ask you a crazy question. Please. We always do this. Biggest failure that you've ever seen come through you. In fact, most people we ask, tell me about a customer that you fired and you felt so much better because you knew you were not a match. Failure, you know, well, fail, you know, the failure, I never take on more than I could accomplish. I mean, I... Well, I mean failures as far as people that you had to serve, that you turned well, around and well, said, we're just not working with you. You are not a match for yeah, us. Yeah, oh, no, I, I, okay, I had a client in my food incubator, and she made gourmet dog biscuits. They were very good. She was selling them at high-end Wait a minute, places. how do you know they were very good? The dogs always loved them. Oh, you didn't dogs try one. She <laughs> loved, I saw videos. Dogs were nuts. Okay. And they were expensive. But she abused, you know, she abused the people that work at the incubator. She called them names. I didn't. I, when I got wind of this, I met with her and I said, you know, this is not what we do here. And she was like, I'm paying money to be here. I can do what I want. I said, you're fired. I said, go find another incubator. You're not working here. My staff does not deserve the abuse you're giving them. Take care. Kind of tore the contract up. First time I so fired a she, client. So is she successful now? Or? I don't know. I don't know what happened to her. You know, Did it I feel good, her. though? 
you know, I, not not that it felt good. I felt bad because she had a good business. Her business was good. She just was her own worst enemy. And I don't. I, I, you know, I should check to see if she's still in business. I have no clue. But I don't suspect she is because someone with that kind of attitude and personality, you know, will not endear themselves to, to be successful. I had a client that was calling my office and yelling and swearing at my staff. And my, I've got people that are totally against that, and it offends them. And I had to call this client and say, look, if you're that upset that you need to do that, don't call my staff. Call me. Yeah. But I'm not going to tolerate you swearing at my staff. They work too hard. And that's that's exactly what I do, too. And that's the way to run a small business. You are the boss, and you have to protect your staff. Right. So for startups, when I was a kid and I started my first business, on my business card, I never put my title. Never. I ne- never let anybody know I own the business. Mm-hmm. And I used it for negotiation purposes. So, Seth, if you were selling me something, it's like, look, I'd love to, but the owner of this company is a cheap son of a – he's never going to let me do that. Mm-hmm. Or if you wanted a really big discount from me, Seth would love to do that, but the owner of this company is never going to allow me to sell it at that price. So that was my advice to young entrepreneurs that are just starting out. Do not tell people you own it. That's it could work both ways, but I understand why you did that. Right. So, but um, small business is the backbone of this country, uh, and really small it starts with one or two people. And seeing success is is great, and uh, that really makes us in our office really happy. And we feel value at the end of the day. I always tell people when they start their careers, you know, making money is so important. You want to support yourself, your family, and have things in your life. But if you don't feel the value at the end of the day, rethink what you're doing. So, Seth, we've been cousins a long time. Your dad <laughs> has been an active part of my life. And he's been, obviously, always there for you. Yes. So I'm going to let you give a little tribute, if you're comfortable with it, to your dad today. Great. He was on our okay. show. Yeah, no, some of you heard my dad, Jack Bornstein. Uh, he's 101 years old. And, you know, 101, life is not a lot, you know, to do at this point and he's he's comfortable but he's not what he was but he's a great guy and he's been a wonderful uncle and father and a friend to lots of people and uh, his thing is you know it's interesting up until about six months about a year ago he was the chair of the parking committee of his residence which here in Florida is a very big deal as some people know who gets to park where and I was with him and his phone's loud it's on speaker but he's hearing he's difficult I was with him, and a woman calls, complaining, bitching about the parking and why someone took her space. And my dad was like, just listen. And my daughter said, oh, what a crazy lady. And my dad, you know, spoke to the woman and said, I'll call you back, I have family. And my daughter, oh, dad, how, you know, Pop, how do you work listen to something like that? And he goes, no, everybody has a story. You need to hear them out. You can't dismiss it because what's important to them may not be important to you, but... It is important to them, and you have to listen to them. So that's a great takeaway. And only realize, you know, I, I knew that, but hearing, seeing that happen a year ago, that's how my dad is a success in everything he's done. He's a good listener. I've never seen your father upset. Never. Yeah, he's, he's there are moments <laughs> I grew up with him. Maybe, maybe well, in front of you, but I'm no, just saying I've know, never seen it. My father, uh, my father, 101, he grew up in New York City, served World War II, as maybe when you probably heard the one time my father slapped me was in our home. We never used derogatory words to any ethnic group or religion. I never knew they existed because it wasn't said in my family. Um, 
for some reason, I was maybe eight or nine years old, and I called my sister a derogatory term. He slapped me. He said, we don't use the words in this house. And I remember that. He never slapped me for anything else, but that was it. And it was a lesson. You know, eight years old, I never, I don't, you know, I'm not perfect, but, you know, you don't say words that are stupid like that. It's, it demeans yourself and everybody around you. So that was, that's when I saw him angry, and for good reason. I've never heard this story. Like I said, I, I used to joke around that my uncle smiles all the time like he's passing gas. He, I mean, you know? He, was, he doesn't, he intolerance, he worked very hard for civil rights in this country in the 60s. Uh, low middle income people. He worked for, uh, you know, worked for the government. And but civil rights. His hero is Jackie Robinson. He once said that because, for a man to go through what he went through to survive, with such grace and intelligence, he thought that was remarkable. Wow. And he wasn't a Dodger fan. My dad. He was a Yankee fan. But Jackie Robinson. He wasn't a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. He, he was wasn't. from Brooklyn. I know. No. He saw Babe Ruth play when he's five years old. So that made it. My dad told me he was a, that my father. His younger brother was a a Brooklyn Dodger. He was an ally of my father from Brooklyn. Oh, but that's uh, funny. but that story always stayed with me. That scene, that his Jackie Robinson was so important in his life because he withstood grace under terrible pressure and moved on and did the right thing. And uh, you know we all don't always do the right thing. Jack, I'm sure, has done the right thing at various times. But I remember him telling me that it was it stayed with me and being a good listener. Your dad's a great Thank guy. You. He's. He's amazing. Thank you. So, when you're let's go let's go back to economic development in Queens. I assume you're just working with companies in New York, or do they specifically have to be in Queens? No, the new, uh, mostly in Queens, but New York City. You know, we, we we take we're not limited to local businesses, but most people are from Queens, okay. and that's too many people. So it's a pretty big big city, right? And when somebody first comes in, what's the process? What do they have to do to be um, part of your process? It depends on the program. If they want, we, we have intake. They work with a business counselor to find out what they're seeking and what they want to do. Some people are just thinking about a business. Others get started. They need help. It really varies, but we try to understand it. And we have different counselors to meet, so they, they meet with the right counselor. Some people just want information on how to get the permits, licenses. Others want information on how to do social media. And we're trying better to do those things because we always would be a step ahead and it's sometimes hard. You know, 10 years ago, what was social media? Now it changes every hour and a half. Right. So we need to really understand financial planning. Uh, I just hired a business financial planning advisor who was a CFO for Berkshire Hathaway Company, part-time, retired. So he'll be giving business financial counseling to people. Um, you know, social media, I've got a couple of people who are experts in that, so it really varies what the client needs. Uh, one size does not fit all. So when a company comes to you, depending on where they are, brand new, just an idea, been in business for a little bit, obviously their approach is a little different in as yes. far as getting them to the SBA, maybe to help them get funded. Right. We're not a funding agency, but we help refer them to funding. And most of our groups get funded through micro-funders, um, you know, the reality is banks, very few banks will take a, entertain loans for under $100,000 because right. it's the same effort as a million dollars and they can't make the commission. But we have some banks that are very proactive in small business, SBA loan guarantees. So, but we, don't, we never refer a loan unless we believe they've done, the, they've done the homework. Years and years ago, before the Internet, I had this idea for selling cars that we would actually go to your house, take the pictures, and we were going to set up a kiosk in the malls. And if you want to buy a, a car, you could actually look and see all the cars that were available. And we would set it up that 
you know, you'd go over and, and view the car and like kind of be the middleman. And I went to score and I asked him for help and I said, Oh, nice young Jewish kid who wants to start a business. Yeah, we're not gonna help you with nothing. There's nothing available for you. Yes, we, we work with score. Like all business counseling, it's the quality of the counselor. And it really varies. There are many we tell people there are many places to get business advice in New York or anywhere. You know, find the one that works for you. You know, the chemistry is always different. There's no one better than others. Some are better resources for funding, others are better resources for marketing. And a number of our clients use different business counselors in different agencies, and that's absolutely fine. It's the chemistry that makes it work. So when I left there, I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles, and I said, I want to do this. And they said, you need to set up a dealership. I'm like, no, we're an advertising agency. And they told me flat out, no, you're a dealership because you're going to make a commission. And that was the end of my idea. So do you find that there's sometimes local laws, things like that, that are going to prevent somebody from their there, ideas? There are. There are. You know, it really varies on the sector. But there's, you know, New York City's a lot of laws, a lot of red tape. And we, we, we try to figure out ways to make it work. I mean, really, really, is, it's difficult to start a small business. I mean, the city, after New York City credit over the last 10 years, they've really tried to streamline things, make it simpler. But it is cumbersome. No way around that. So in Florida, if you start a business, you can have exemptions from workers' comp. You can have three people in a non-construction business without workers' comp. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be held liable if somebody gets hurt. But by law, you didn't need it. In New York City, the moment you hire one person, if you do not have uh, workers' comp and you do not have uh, disability insurance, they send the shock and awe letter, 14 grand. You know, and I think, I think you know, I'm supportive of that because people do get hurt. And people are taken advantage of. You know, we're not ready for business class. We always tell people, when you hire people, do it on the books. Go on the books immediately. Uh, pay your sales tax quarterly. Do all the right stuff because that's what screws a business in the end. You know, they hire someone off the books. They get hurt. They get a lawsuit. have got proper insurance. Uh, they think they can pay sales tax. They'll wait this month, do it next month. Slippery slope. And it's a problem. That is the difference between a big boy business and a little boy business or a little girl business. And we've said this to many people. You know, there's certain laws with the IRS that says, are they independent contractors or employees? And everybody wants to say, oh, no, 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 they're independent contractors. But you're directing where they're going. You're paying them by the hour. It's not the painter that comes into your house with his own paintbrushes. No, no, legalizing businesses is really important. Off the books is always a bit. You can't expand. You can't get government contracts. One of my great programs is called Home Improvement Contractor Training, HICT. We started it eight years ago. We had a gentleman come in. He was a home improvement contractor. He wanted a city contract, you know, to do home improvement in the housing projects. And we said, great. He drove a Range Rover. He's doing well. He said, let's see your business papers. What business papers? What are your local licenses? He was all in cash. And he did well in his neighborhood, mostly immigrant neighborhood. Nobody asked. But he can't expand. I said, listen, you've got to learn how to you know, be legit. So we started a program. It's a teach the test program. We don't teach them how to be contractors. They know that stuff. How to take the test to be licensed and permitted. And most of our clients are immigrants. And one reason we realized is they come from countries the government was really bad and scary. You didn't go to government for anything. So they did it all off the books, off the radar. And you can't grow. You know, there's a certain right. limit. So we've trained over a 1,000 men and women to take the test. And I think 98% pass. They don't pass because they don't read the book, whatever it is. But 
So we have a thousand businesses or legitimate businesses. And once a business free year, they can apply for eligible for MWB certification and get contracts from the city and other public agencies. It's a great program. You know, this is going back to being the business midwife. We don't realize how well some of them do until years later when I see, you know, you know, Joe Chang had a small business in Flushing. Now he's got 30 employees in Ridgewood doing housing. And I, I don't know it because he never gets back to me. <laughs> you might have heard of a Mets first baseman, Mo Vaughn. Sure. So Mo Vaughn's been on the show, and he's friends with Louie. And he was amazing. He's got 700 people that work for him. He actually does low-income housing, I think, in Queens. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the name yet. And one of the first things he told us was that when he got in, he'd go to meetings and he kept his mouth shut. He didn't want anybody to know he was a dumb baseball player. Mm-hmm. His words. Mm-hmm. I didn't say it was dumb, but that he was a baseball player and that he wanted to not be the smartest guy in the room, that he needed to surround himself, himself with a lot of people that were a lot smarter than him. That's so true. You know, he's really listening, like going back to what my father said, being a better listener than a talker will always help you. So Louis has got a whole bunch of baseball friend, uh, player friends, athletes, that have started their own business. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you have for Louis to give to these people when they're trying to do that? Start your own business? Just just like you would in a baseball team. You gotta practice all the time. You never stop practicing. You never to be in top of your game you have to always practice, rehearse, uh, you know, throw the ball, you know, you know, hit the ball, you know, run the bases. Same thing with small business, continually learn and don't don't sell yourself short. You know, have confidence in yourself and make it happen. You hear that, Louis? Hundred percent. You've actually said that many, many times that when you stop practicing or stop trying, that was the end. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm not a sports guy, as my cousin Alan knows, but I swim. And I've gotten better. I'm not great. You know, Michael Phelps is not worried about me at all. But if I didn't practice, and I'm a little older now, so I'm a little slower, but when I first I started swimming as an adult, and uh, when I did, I could barely get across a pool. And now, you know, 20, 30 laps is no, no problem. So I think it's really important, but it, you, you practice and it gets better. So, Louie, you, you don't know this, but my cousin is a polar bear member. <laughs> Louie, do, do you know what a polar bear member is? No idea. Explain that. No, I, I swim year-round at Brighton Beach, Coney Island. I've done this for about 15, 20 years, and uh, about 10 years ago I was asked to represent the United States with a couple of friends at the International Winter Swimming Competition in China. And it started me in a whole new world of bizarre winter swimming sports. I've traveled around the world. And I do have the record for taking the longest time to swim the shortest distance in the coldest waters um, <laughs> in Latvia. Uh, it's kind of fun. It's basically a buddy road trip, you know, more than sport. But it really is a sport. And I've met some great people. And I swim regularly at Bryan Beach. I'm the slowest. But my colleague, my fellow swimmers there, some of them the English Channel, Catalina Island, they're really incredible sports people. But... The support that we give each other is really important, and it makes me keep going. So, Louie, think about it. You have a guest that comes <laughs> down to visit you, and it's 75 degrees, and they're complaining how cold the water is. <laughs> My cousin, you've been in, what, 12-degree weather? Uh, let's see, January, middle of January, is about 16 degrees, and uh, my friends and I uh, did our laps, not many. Uh, the water temperature was 32, I think, in the ocean. It was cold. But, uh, oh, thank you. Puerto Ricans are going to be inside. <laughs> so you're saying there's not many polar 
Puerto Rican members. No, Louis? one of my one of my swim friends is Mexican, so he's he's uh, he's used to it. You know, they, our group is very diverse all over the world. So, Lou, you want an invite to go up to New York and we could watch you swim with them in the middle of the winter? You said it, watch. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not going to be you? Not going to be me. Mm-hmm. I will watch. That's funny. Yeah, I don't think I could. Yeah, do it is a dubious sport, I agree, but it's a lot of fun. I used to go to Camp Shalom when I was a kid, and they had this little man-made lake that came, or man-made pond that came off the, the mountain water, and it was cold. Oh, it was mm-hmm. cold. It's a mindset, <laughs> agreed. But you always feel that you've had it. It's been an achievement. You always feel better when endorphins get going. It makes a difference. So, have you ever done any group exercises for your Queen's economic development that you've invited no, a bunch of people? No, no, I would say, never hey, impose that on anybody who doesn't want to do it. It's not a team building not, exercise. I don't think so. This is an individual thing, you know. But uh, but we do we do events in our office doing a planning an event. The our fiscal year ends the end of June. So we do it end of the year, New Year's party, end of June for July. And we're planning that for another couple of weeks. It'll be outside. You know, we're still a little hesitant. Like most offices, we're hybrid, remote for the most part. But we've gotten stuff done the last year and a half, two years, and I'm very pleased about that, too. We adjusted as everybody else did. It took a few days, a few weeks. Early on, we thought we'd be back in a few weeks, and everything changed in a heartbeat. And that's what small businesses do. You go with the punch, you roll with the punches, and we did that. Have you found a bunch of businesses that have actually been a whole lot more successful because of yes, COVID? Yes, you know, in our incubator, um, we had a number of small businesses that do uh, home delivery of food. They took off, obviously, during the pandemic. Uh, the Anchovy Project was doing pretty good, and he's now in his own space because he did home delivery. My Happy Tummy, Japanese foods, they're doing excellent, so it really makes a difference. You know, wow. We had a bunch of clients that were doing a lot of uh, IT, and when it came time to have to set people up at home and do remote access, mm-hmm. these guys took off. Oh no! I, I, like everybody else, I bought a brand new computer system at home, new printer, and you know my IT company, Champion Office, they were all over people's homes for like three or four months setting them up, just like me, and they were great. You know, Mr. Fong, who was my IT guy from Flushing Queens was in my home, and in one hour he set it up and instructed me and because I, I couldn't leave my off my home. I love Flushing Queens. Flushing Queens. Flushing, for those who don't know, is uh, one of our many neighborhoods, uh, largely uh, Asian from Korea, China, uh, Japan, uh, but also Mideast, and the food is great. It is the new Chinatown. It actually it makes Manhattan, Manhattan Chinatown it's seem insignificant. It's a insignificant. very wonderful uh, area to shop and uh, eat dumplings. I could walk up and down Main Street from Cherry Ave all the way up. Yeah. In fact, there's an old Caldor building. Did they finally paint it? I don't know. <laughs> I worked at Caldor's when I was a kid, and right. it always yeah. freaked me out walking yeah. up and knowing the store closed 25 well, years ago. Well, I'll make a plan of ending soon, but make a plug. Those who every in New York, Queens County is the real New York City, the real authentic flavors. Uh, we have a great tourism program, uh, Queens Tourism Council, run by my colleague Rob. And uh, tourism is a big business in New York City, but... If you want the real thing, uh, culinary-wise, Queens is where it's at. So if somebody was in New York City and they were listening to this show and they wanted your help, how would they reach out to your office? Uh, Queens Economic Development is uh, online, QEDC, queensny.org is our website. But just put it, plug in. Say, que- say that one more time, que- slow. Queensny.org is our website. And just plug in Queens Economic Development and you'll find us. And is there a phone number? 
Phone numbers are 718-263-0546. One more time. Slow. 718-263-0546. Excellent. Louie, you must have something. No, man, this is impressive. I'm listening to him and really enjoying the conversation and really learning from it. I think uh, if I had a business, I know where to go to or wanted to start a business. I mean, definitely uh, this would be the right place to start. Great. Well, anybody send me, put your name on our website, on our email list. We have many webinars online. People take them all over the country. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much for letting me. Hold on. Before we hang up, we're not leaving yet. She's got a couple more minutes. Tell me, because I said at the very beginning of the show that you are my idol when it comes to networking. That's that's a scary thought. It's um, true. Networking, you know, when I tell people in networking, when you go to networking, it's not trying to meet 50 people, throwing out your cards. If you meet one or two good people, that's great. Think of what you could do to help someone else, not how they could help you. I agree with that That 100%. is the best thing to do. How can I help you and spend time with that person better than trying to meet 15 people in five minutes. You know, spend time, look them in the eye, and see what works for them. I agree with that. Absolutely. So are there more in-person networking events taking place in Queens? You know, it's beginning to start. Numbers have gone up, unfortunately, in New York City. So we're a little hesitant, um, but hopefully by the summer, the fall, we hope the situation changes. I've been to a few in the last few months, but I'm a little hesitant now, to be honest. I want to be really careful. I don't want anybody in my staff to be in jeopardy, so uh, we'll hold it off a little bit until numbers drop some more. Okay. Seth, I can't thank you enough for being here with us. I know you have a lot going on, and we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Louie. It's great to be here. I love you, cousin. You're a good man. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Secret to My Success on Legends 100.3. When it comes to health coverage, you want solid value from a trustworthy company you can rely on. Florida Blue offers Medicare Advantage plans that can help you get more out of your health coverage. And don't you want more? Call Apple Insurance, your local agency for Florida Blue, at 888-MY-BLUE-8 to have all your Medicare questions answered and learn about different options. Don't settle for less than the value and stability Florida Blue has delivered throughout the state of Florida to Medicare beneficiaries for more than 25 years. Value, security, knowledge, and trust. Blue Medicare from Florida Blue means more. Call Apple Insurance at 888-MY-BLUE-8 today to speak to a licensed agent about your Medicare Advantage options. That's 888-MY-BLUE-8. Apple Insurance and Florida Blue. Call 888-MY-BLUE-8 today. Florida Blue is an independent license of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association.